I think memory does interesting things to us. Uh, when we're in difficult times, uh, we have a tendency to remember only the best parts of the past and wish we could go back there. Um, I think in these particular days, uh, many of us still harbor a longing to return to normalcy because we want uh, a simpler life, a less complicated life, a life with less restrictions, a life that's less fragmented, less cluttered. But I'm wondering, was what was normal all that spectacular? Or was it more of a rat race? And do we have selective memory setting in already just because of the irritations of today? Every once in a while when you're uh, in groups of pastors or, or church leaders talking about how complicated the life in the church has become, you'll hear someone say something like this. You know, I wish we could just give back to the way things were in the New Testament church. If we could just get back there, I mean, it was a small, trusted community, not so many programs to maintain, no buildings to look after, uh, which isn't completely true because the temple tax was still in force, but, but you get what I mean, right? But I am not sure that life in the early church was simple, or at least as simple as we like to think that it was. And to help us understand the nature of life in the New Testament church, Luke puts together two stories in the book of Acts. Here at the end of Acts 4 and at the beginning of Acts 5, we have two stories meant to be read together. The first is the story of a man named Barnabas who sells some land and gives the money to the apostles for distribution to those who have need. This story complicates or complements earlier statements made that the early church folks took care of each other no matter what. And if they had resources, they would sell them to help others. And, and we love this idea. Um, but we have to remember that this fellowship wasn't all peaches and cream. And to help us remember that, he adds this second story. Now, I'm somewhat convinced that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that the book of Acts is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. And I would invite you then to stand for the reading of the gospel as recorded in the book of Acts. This is Acts 5, beginning with verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now you don't have to think very hard to understand why great fear seized the whole church. I mean, what's really happening here in this story? Ananias and Sapphira want to be seen as doing something good, something selfless. They want to appear better than they are. They want to attain a measure of respect that can only be gained by self-sacrifice. There is deceit involved in this gesture. They pretend to be something that they are not in order to have other folks think better of them. They could have sold the property and said to Peter, hey, we're giving half of what we gained to the fellowship. That would have been honest and would have been fine. They could have decided not to sell the property at all. That would have been fine. There's no law that said you had to sell your property. However, perhaps in their minds, they were telling themselves something like this. If we don't sell this property that we really don't need, others will wonder why we didn't sell it. And they'll think we're being selfish. And they will look down on us as selfish. And we don't want them to think that about us. So in order to create a false image of themselves, they felt like they had to sell in order to keep up with the Barnabases who had just sold. Why is this so offensive? Well, there are a couple of reasons why it's so offensive. The motivation for this transaction is deceit. The couple wants to deceive the Christian community into thinking more highly of this couple than they ought to think. Honesty is being lost. Transparency is being lost. How are you ever going to grow in Christ-likeness as individuals or as a community if you aren't honest with one another? You can't. If honesty and transparency are not present, you can't grow. Don't forget also that the person to whom Ananias and Sapphira sold the property knows exactly how much he paid for it, right? And because of the size of the community, most likely knows what they're doing with that money because the word gets around, right? It's not, it's not a secret, these kind of public transactions. And so the reality that the new owner of the property knows what he paid, knows that Ananias and Sapphira are supposed to be Christians as part of this community, knowing that they didn't take all the money to the apostles, immediately assassinates the witness of the community of faith to this new landowner because he sees the deceit clearly. You know, the folks outside the church see the deceit clearly. There's no hedging our bets. There's no shading our motives. They, they see what's going on. And remember, God 
has plans to use this church in order to spread the gospel of love and compassion and salvation to the community around us. But if, if Ananias and Sapphira are going to assassinate the mission of Christ by their deceit, what use is this community to God? And we probably realize that if you protect patterns of deceit, that will in time ruin all the relationships in the community, create mistrust, foster dishonesty. Something must be done to correct this problem or the usefulness of the church will be destroyed. The pattern of dishonesty needs to be nipped in the bud. But I am afraid that the discipline of that day did not go all the way to the root of the problem. I have a tendency, I must confess, to drive a little faster than the speed limit permits on major highways. When I do this, I usually have a rationalization in my mind while I'm driving. You know, just in case Adam Morois happens to pull me over for driving a little too quickly. And I'm thinking in my mind things like, I'm just going the same speed as all the other cars in the passing lane, which is usually the case. But if I'm candid with myself, I know the law, I know the speed limit, and I'm making a conscious choice to drive faster than the law allows. And anything beyond that is simply Whitney's rationalization. And what is rationalization? It's a fancy word for deceit, right? I'm telling myself this is fine, all the while knowing, really, it's not. Rationalization is a fancy word for deceit, usually a deceit of others, and sometimes the deceit of myself. There was a television commercial a few months ago uh, by Liberty Mutual, and they're trying to make the claim that uh, they will customize their insurance policy to your specific needs. And a part of the commercial, a biker comes across the screen and his calf muscles are so overdeveloped that it's almost cartoonish. And I saw that, and I sort of chuckled at that. But my fear is that the rationalization muscles in the church of Jesus Christ are so overdeveloped that we don't even know the depth of our own deceit of ourselves. Rationalization is rampant among us because we know better than to do some of the things we're doing, but we don't want to stop. So we create excuses and rationalize our behavior. Commentators tell us that this New Testament story is the parallel of an Old Testament story found in Joshua 7. It's the story of Achan. I don't know if you know the story of Achan. Israel has crossed the Jordan River. The incident in Jericho has happened. Israel walks around the walls seven times. The walls implode. It seems as if Israel's going to walk through Canaan without lifting a finger. And they come across this next enemy and they're sent to battle. When Israel looks at the size of the forces they're going to face, they go, eh, 
just send a few thousand men. I mean, we don't need the whole army to, to mobilize on this one. This is, this is an easy one. But a problem has occurred, and the problem is this. They've been told in a previous skirmish not to take any plunder. Don't take any of this wealth for yourself. Don't take any of that. And most of them had obeyed, but not all of them. And one particular family saw some silver, some gold, thought to themselves, it's nice to have this as a hedge against rainy days. And, and how can there be any inherent evil in silver or gold anyway? So they take some of these possessions and dig a hole in the bottom of where their tent is and put a carpet over it in the ground, and they have these possessions. They've not done what God has done. And they've rationalized themselves to believing it's just resources. You know, it's just, it's just stuff. But then Israel goes out to take care of this enemy with just a few thousand men, and the army of Israel is routed. I mean, they are wiped. People die. They have to flee. And they're thinking, Jericho, you know, huge city, walls. We did nothing, and we won. Tiny little enemy, and we can't stand against them. What? is going on here. So Joshua confronts the Lord and say, what is this? And, and the Lord responds to Joshua in Joshua 7, starting in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things, those little bits of gold and silver. They have stolen they have lied. They have put them among their own possessions. This is why is the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is among you. Do you hear the anxiety here? God can't use Israel if they attempt to deceive him and don't follow his commands. Unless there is honesty and obedience, God cannot bring his kingdom through them. Achan must confess, the object stolen must be destroyed, and Achan pays for his deceit with his life. Because dishonesty destroys the community and makes it impossible for the community to be used by the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. And I think at times we're tempted to think that our petty attempts at deceit do not really matter. They are big sins, so we, we rationalize that they're not really bad things. But I'm afraid that the person we most deceive is ourselves because we never really know the damage that our deceit causes. Here's one way that rationalization works to kill us. In addition to desensitizing us to our sinfulness, it erodes the transparency and the unity of our fellowship. We're supposed to be a fellowship of interconnectedness, one where we can talk to each other to gain support as we are transformed by the grace of the Holy Spirit more and more to the image of Christ. 
We're supposed to be a fellowship where we can be honest with each other so we can talk about what this process of growing in grace is like. But if we are unable to admit our faults or our errors or our mistakes to one another, we lose the ability to have community support as we grow. If we would rather rationalize our sinfulness, our mistakes, and our errors, rather than confess our errors, mistakes, and sinfulness, we can't make any progress forward. We need those kinds of encouraging, supporting relationships if we're going to create the safe environment in which we can grow. And this is the very environment that calls the world to join us. This is the safety of our fellowship that makes it okay to be who we are while God is working on us to transform us into who he wants us to be, right? We've got to have that kind of ability to confess without fearing condemnation and judgment. After all, judgment is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Not our work. But if we are a judging and arrogant community, one who is harder on those around us than we are on ourselves, one that rationalizes its own shortcomings and overlooks their own faults, but quickly points out the faults of everyone around us, we will never be the kind of community that Christ died to create. And we must be that community. We must be the covenantal community of faith. Listen to the words of Philippians 4 and 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray together and encourage one another in prayer, this gentleness with one another can emerge because we understand ourselves as sinners saved by grace, fellow pilgrims on a road traveling together that we might see the kingdom of God come through us. That's who we must be. That's what we long for. Candidly, that's why we need the whole fellowship together. Being fragmented doesn't allow us to get the kind of encouragement and support that we desperately need. We must bring together the body of Christ in humility and compassion, in encouragement and support. Because you remember, every time we do the communion liturgy, we're reminded that we are the body of Christ that exists for the sake of the world. Christ is redeeming all that is through us. Redeeming us first so that we can be agents of his redemption in the world. And he has a mission for us and he wants to use us to redeem everything that has been lost, everything that is broken, everything that is fragmented, everything that is disjointed. He wants to see, well, he's not willing that any should perish, right? And so he's calling to us to 
Forsake the rationalizations. Forsake the deceit. To forsake the distance we place between ourselves and others in the body of Christ. And live in this honest fellowship so that by the Spirit's power we can love one another and be committed to one another. I read this prayer last evening. Caught my attention. Dear Jesus, gift us to stop grandstanding and trying to get attention, to do the truth quietly without display, to let the dishonesties of our lives fade away, to accept our limitations, to cling to the gospel of grace, and to delight in your love. Amen. Would you sing with me a moment? I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity this morning if you would like to um, speak with the Holy Spirit. I'd like to give you an opportunity to spend time at this altar in prayer. We'll sing a few verses of a song and then I'll pray and then we'll have a closing song uh, together. But Sing this with me, and then um, if you'd like to pray, you're welcome to come while we sing. I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you, my one defense. My righteousness, oh God, how I need you. I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. I told the crowd last night when I was, when I was preaching this message that you understand when a preacher's preaching and use an example of their own rationalization that they're always picking the least offensive of all the rationalizations that exist, right? Because I am preaching up here. And um, it would be deceitful of me to say that's the only way I rationalize. I mean, I rationalize my impatience. There's a host of things in me that the Spirit has been talking to me all week about in terms of, yeah, you, you make a little exception for yourself here, and, you're, and, and, and you know what I'm talking about. And those are the very things that we have to bring to the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, you've got to help me. You've got to tell me the truth about myself. If, if I'm ever going to be the person you can use to help create this fellowship 
of encouragement and support and faithfulness that will confirm the love of your gospel in the community, then Spirit, you're going to have to help me. Please, Lord, help me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know us even if we've deceived ourselves about ourselves. And we invite you, Lord, to search us, to see if there is any offensive way in us, and to lead us in your everlasting pathways. For it is our desire that your kingdom would come through us. And it is our desire that we would live in the shelter of a community of faith that encourages and supports and enables us to appropriate the transforming grace of God in our lives so that we can be more and more like Jesus every day. We know we won't accomplish that in our own strength. But by the help of the Holy Spirit and with the encouragement of one another, we know you will continue to work in us to your glory. And that is our desire. Help us, Lord. Help us to, to band together to see your will done in this place. This is our prayer. And Lord, we don't even know exactly what we're praying for. But if we did, we would pray it all the more and ask you to carry it out exactly as you will. Because you know us and we are yours. Amen. May you live in the glorious freedom that is the inheritance of all the saints. And may the Lord be pleased to bring his kingdom to your community through you in the week ahead. Amen.